Trying to improve mission delivery in a political mud bath, well, it just doesn't work. That's according to former Veterans Affairs Secretary David Shulkin. As his new book details, public service can be a challenge. I talked to him about a range of matters, including the decision to scrap the decades-old Vista electronic record system. We started, though, with how, after a career in medicine and hospital administration, he joined VA as Undersecretary for Health during the Obama administration. And when you got to Veterans Affairs, you arrived as a physician and someone who had also managed large medical institutions before. What did you find when you moved from undersecretary to secretary? Let's talk about that transition, because you came in under the Obama administration but moved up to secretary under the Trump. Yes, I did uh, come from the private sector. I had been running private health care organizations my entire career, and I was the president of a large hospital in northern New Jersey when the Obama administration asked me to come to VA. And that, to me, was a huge learning experience because not having worked in the government sector, I really had to learn a whole different way of how to approach the job and what the way that one gets things done. In the transition from undersecretary to secretary, that was actually an easier transition for me because I had already been in government 18 months. I understood the agency. I understood the problems that we were facing. I had relationships with the veteran service organizations as well as Congress and uh, members of the executive branch. So I was able to be able to move very quickly into that role of secretary, make sure that the agenda kept moving. Now, there were lots of stories about a group from... Mar-a-Lago, a Florida group, and so forth, three or four people that were close to President Trump on the private side that were trying to influence Veterans Affairs policy. Was your sense that they actually had some sway there? Was that a reality, this outside group? Well, these were members uh, of Mar-a-Lago that had a prior relationship with President Trump and had stood up to help advise him on how the Department of Veteran Affairs could improve. And when I became secretary, they continued to advise the White House and advise me as individuals. I don't think that their intent necessarily was to do anything other than to be able to help make sure that we were moving to fix the system in the way that President Trump had publicly declared in, as a candidate and then as president that he wanted to improve care for veterans. Because a lot of the stories talked about the subterranean agenda of wanting to totally privatize VA. I never got the sense that was what the goal was, but maybe to just increase or expand VA into the private sector with the programs that were later enacted by Congress. What's your take on that? Well, I think that there's a distinction. I think that when you look at an area as big as the Department of Veteran Affairs, you're going to see people all along the political spectrum with their thoughts and ideas about how this agency should be run and how it should be improved. I think the people that were individually advising were trying to improve the system. I think that there were political forces in Washington and throughout the country that felt that the best strategy was to completely privatize the VA. So as VA secretary, and I certainly wasn't the only one facing this, there were strong political voices in almost every issue that would arise at VA. And there clearly was a growing and strong voice for privatization. Given that situation, nevertheless, the VA is what it is and was when you were there. 
And one of the situations you faced was the scheduling issue where there were long wait times and systems that didn't support modern techniques for processing people and their appointments. And what did you find there? What did it look like from the inside, especially with respect to the staff that was responsible for all of that? One of the things that I found when I first entered the department in 2015 was just how difficult it is to run an organization if you don't have permanent leadership in place. And so there had been the resignation of the secretary and of the undersecretary and of many of the senior management positions as a result of the wait time crisis in 2014. And so when I arrived, there really still wasn't a cohesive plan in place to address the wait time issue. So I focused first on those veterans that were waiting for urgent medical problems. And we created some processes to make sure that we quickly dealt with anybody with urgent medical problems. Then we put in place a process so that every VA across the country would be able to see veterans on the same day basis if they had urgent medical problems so that this wait time crisis would not go back to where where it became a crisis point. And finally, we published and posted all of our wait times publicly on the internet and still do at the Department of Veteran Affairs to make sure that everybody understands where we are currently. That resulted in an article that I published in 2018 in the Journal of the American Medical Association that now demonstrates that the Department of Veteran Affairs has shorter wait times than you would find in the public sector or in the private sector. And I wanted to also ask you about an issue that has to do with the it's ongoing, and that is the electronic medical record. And VA seems to be making progress, as is DOD, in working with the same vendor and getting toward a new electronic health record system. You made the decision to go with Cerner, maybe by a little different acquisition strategy than DOD. But tell us how you got to that point and what the buy-in was or what the resistance was from the VA's acquisition and IT staff. I mean, how did that all go? If you go back and you look at the issue of the electronic medical record, VA was a leader in developing this, the largest health system that first went fully electronic that dates back 35 years ago. But about 20 years ago, there started to be very public debate and calls from Congress for the Department of Defense and the Department of Veteran Affairs to begin to start working together on an electronic health record strategy. And that only makes sense because VA knows where every future customer is gonna come from, the Department of Defense, and we know when you leave DOD and you go to VA, there often is a problem with transferring information when their systems don't talk to each other. So while this debate had been going on for 20 years and committees being formed and trying to reach consensus, nothing was happening. So I felt it was really my responsibility as secretary to make sure that we resolve this one way or another. And I could not make an argument that VA should be in the commercial software development system, particularly with these very sophisticated companies hiring the talent that VA was not going to be able to compete with software development processes. So I made a decision that it was in our best interest and the taxpayer's best interest, but most importantly in veterans' best interest to go to a commercial system. And when I looked at these commercial systems, I felt that if we took the system that DOD had already chosen, we would definitely be able to solve the transfer of data problem. And the challenge before I would agree 
to sign off on a contract was a demonstration that we could also transfer information with the private sector because so many veterans are now getting care in both the private sector and the Department of Veteran Affairs. Because the government does have very elaborate procedures for market research and source selection and the whole acquisition process. Did those people get involved and did you find that they they went along or it looked unusual for the secretary to simply declare a contract? This was definitely an unusual process, but it was a defined process called the determination of findings. And the issue here was that I had declared as our top clinical priority for the department, the prevention of veteran suicide. Over 20 veterans a day taking their life every day uh, through suicide. And when you take a look at the period of time that that suicide rate is the highest, it's the one-year period when somebody leaves the Department of Defense and they transfer into the civilian sector. And I was tired of hearing story after story of people leaving the Department of Defense and not getting the proper continuity of care, the right medications and the right care, because the VA doctors simply didn't have the information and there wasn't a transfer of the appropriate clinical care uh, record that needed to happen. So I made a determination because of life safety issues that I felt were in the interest of saving lives for veterans that I had to make in a very specific process that our lawyers brought us through. And that was a determination to be able to skip what I thought would be several years of debates and challenges so that we could enter into contract negotiations. I did not make a decision to sign a contract. I made a decision to speed up the process to do direct contract negotiations with Cerner, which ultimately after I left, was signed off by the Department of Veteran Affairs. And let's switch gears a moment. I want to talk about something you've detailed in your book, and that has to do with the travel arrangements and the stories that appeared about you and your wife traveling to Europe and so forth. And I do recall reading Michael Missel's The Inspector General's Report, which pretty much said nothing untoward happened there. How did this blow up to the, to the way it did? It seems to be, from your standpoint and what I read in the book, is that the press really was out to blow up things that were pretty minor in reality. The reason why I spent so much time in the book, which is called It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, about the travel details was because I wanted the reader to objectively take a look at the facts and make their own determination about whether everything was done properly or not. I, of course, maintain that I did everything according to the way that it should be done, that staff handled these arrangements. Uh, But I think that the reader can make their own decision on that. What the book also details is the environment that public servants, very, very talented career professionals who work in the federal government and some political appointees as well, are now subjected to an environment that is so toxic and so full of personal attacks and allegations that I fear it's becoming almost impossible to be able to do the work that all of us went there to do on behalf of the American people. And I am so concerned about this environment 
that I shared my personal story, which at times was very painful for me and my family, because I know we can do better, and I know we have to do better if we expect talented people to continue to want to serve their country in these roles in federal government, and we need these people to be there. And right now we're seeing a lot of people retiring and leaving the federal government, and other people that maybe would have chose to come deciding not to come because they're seeing these stories. And I frankly think it's time that we have a reset of the environment in Washington and make it a place that not only respects but shows gratitude for our great public servants. Is this an indictment of the press, of Congress, of, I mean, where does, what is the ultimate source of all of this? Because I remember a story about you in the New York Times that was marveling at the fact that even as secretary, or perhaps it was when you were undersecretary, that you still took time once a day or once a week to actually check in with a Veterans Affairs patient to kind of keep your hand on the pulse. Even as secretary, I would put on a white coat and a stethoscope and go take care of patients. And I always felt that the closer that I stayed to the environment that was caring for veterans and delivering services, the better job I would do as secretary. So I was, and still am, very, very dedicated to our veterans and their families, who I just think uh, deserve the very best that this country can offer. Um, The environment that we see today, I believe, is set at the very top. And I believe that's the same if you run a small company, a big company, or the federal government. And we need our leaders to stop the political games and to stop trying to beat each other, but to focus on the work that they were put there for to make lives better for the citizens of our country. And I know that's the reason I came to Washington. And I know by working hand in and hand out with all these amazing employees and staff that I worked with in the Department of Veteran Affairs and across federal government, that that's the reason so many people still stay at their jobs. But our leadership needs to set a different tone and needs to stop taking the easy wins to attack each other at the political spectrum, whether you're on the left or right, and start allowing everybody to go back to focusing on their mission of the work that they are trying to accomplish. Because you did have, and this is detailed in the book, a conversation with President Trump during the height of all of this travel information coming out, and he supported you. And then you said that you went home and watched something on MSNBC, one of their commentators, talking, running off on the issue without really a lot of accurate information. So, is the president the source of all of this? Is it the press? Is it everybody? I mean, what's the what's your sense of where this is all starting from? I think like many other things that happen, whether they're conflicts that happen between countries or even conflicts that happen in families, there are small events that start something and people just keep feeding into the process. So I think there's enough blame here to go around for everybody. I think once the political parties and the the people at the far left and far right felt empowered and started to attack people with personal attacks and and you know scandals and allegations the press too readily 
was willing to run with that. And what I found, and I'm not doing an indictment of the press across the board because there were many, many responsible reporters and journalists that wouldn't print things unless they made sure that they had really good sources. But in the environment that we're at, the click by revenue environment, whoever's first to be able to put something online seems to get the credit. There were a number of reporters that were willing to put stories out that I know were not appropriately sourced that were based on rumors and allegations. In my book, I detail that some of these allegations and stories that were actually false were being leaked by members of my own staff, my own political appointees who clearly had a desire to see me uh, get this type of negative attention, and yet reporters would run with it. And so I think that there's enough uh, there's, we have a big enough problem in Washington that there's enough uh, need for everybody who participates to have some self-reflection on whether this is the type of country, this is the type of government that we want to see continue. And getting back to Veterans Affairs Department, what is it you feel people should know about it based on your time inside there that perhaps doesn't get reported enough? I think, first of all, I want people to understand why it's so important that we maintain a strong Department of Veteran Affairs. It's part of our national security system when you run a voluntary military. It's part of our responsibility that we make to our men and women who volunteer to put their lives on the line, that if they come back and they need our help, that we're going to be there for them. And that can't be replaced fully by what we see in the private sector. I also want people to know that this system which is the largest healthcare system in the country, has problems, but it is fixable. This is not too big to fix. We uh, were making huge progress and reforms and modernizing a system, addressing problems that had been there for decades, systemic problems, and being able to fix them through legislative issues and also by improving processes. And that work is continuing today in the, in the Department of Veteran Affairs, which I think is a good thing. But there are some concerns that I think it's important that we watch out for, and they are that we don't begin to start draining resources from the Department of Veteran Affairs and move them too quickly into the private sector, else we may be at a point where this system, the Department of Veteran Affairs, can't operate at modern levels and frankly then no longer will be sustainable. So it's very important that we have the appropriate oversight and transparency as we begin to start fixing some of these problems to make sure it's being done right. And of course that's the role of Congress to be able to have that type of oversight. Did you feel that the accountability was sufficient for career federal employees at VA and that the non-performers could be dealt with effectively whereas the good people could be brought along as they deserved? One of the pieces of legislation that was signed into law when I was secretary was the Accountability and Whistleblower Protection Act. And I did not feel that the accountability for senior federal employees was, was exactly where it should be. I felt that there were clear cases of where people should no longer be able to hold their jobs, but the merit system 
System Protection Board judges would almost uniformly overrule the management or the secretary. And so with the Accountability and Whistleblower Protection Act, I think we still maintain uh, due process, something that I believe very strongly on, but it balanced the ability to be able to make the right decision to get the type of environment that I think everybody wants for veterans. And so today I believe it's a fairer system or a more balanced system. And um, whenever you make a change like that, it's controversial. Not everybody likes it, but I believe that it's worked well to make the system work better. How did public service at the level you served at change you, do you think? Oh, I think it changed both me and my family forever. I think it showed us what public service is about. It not only hopefully helped some people that we were trying to help, like the veterans and their families in this country, but it provided meaning and purpose to what I've done throughout my professional career and frankly was a tremendous honor to be able to serve in that role, not because it was prestigious, but because it gave me the ability to meet people and enter their lives in ways that I would have never done before and to be able to, even though it was difficult at times, sit with family members who had lost sons and daughters to suicide and be able to, you know, meet with families that are still dealing years afterwards with the impact of war. Uh, but to be able to be a part of their lives and to be able to help them along their journey uh, is something that I think is just irreplaceable from a personal perspective and what it meant for me in terms of applying what I learned, not only as a physician, but as an executive prior to joining government. And your wife, Merle, had some pretty tough situations, not of her own making. Is she uh, recovered from, from your having been secretary? I don't think people realize when you enter these positions, particularly at high levels, the whole family enters the position. Not only was I living away from home, but these jobs are seven days a week and you don't get vacations or holidays. And so the family needs to join as part of the process. And so my family uh, would join me whenever they could to participate in events. And as it turns out, since veterans, particularly those going through difficult circumstances, rely so much on their family, when they would see my family would be part of these events and recognitions, it made them very comfortable. So many, many veterans and their families would reach out directly to my wife, who's a physician. They would come to her office and drop things off. And she began to take on this role and a passion for helping improve veterans and their families' lives in a very similar way that I did. And she would take off time from her medical practice and cut back significantly just so she could help do this. And I don't think people appreciate how much uh, families are part of this service when one member of the family is serving. It's really the whole family. And finally, how would you rate the job Bob Wilkie is doing so far? Well, I think that nobody knows better than I do how difficult the job as Secretary of Veteran Affairs is. It is um, a job where there are many, many political forces pulling at you, and you have many tough decisions. And so the last thing I would want to do is to be critical of any secretary who takes on this job with the intention of making positive change. And I know that this making veterans' lives better is very important to Secretary Wilkie, 
and I am grateful that he's been willing to take on this role and know that um, it's a very difficult job, and I believe he's doing the very best that he can. Now, you're not old enough to retire, according to the standard retirement ages. What's your next step? I don't think retirement is in my dictionary. I'm a person who actually is much happier when I'm doing something that's meaningful. Uh, As you know, I've spent a lot of time recently writing my book, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, and I'm using that right now as an opportunity to be able to talk about the importance of public service and the importance of the Department of Veteran Affairs, and I wrote the book on behalf of veterans, and I'll continue to advocate as long as I live for veterans and for making sure that we honor our responsibility to them. There are many issues that are unresolved for our veterans, like the issue of Agent Orange and Blue Water Navy and burn pits, and I'll continue to try to be constructive in making sure that we move towards the right types of policies. And um, I'm very busy doing lots of various activities, uh, all related to improving the lives of Americans through healthcare, technology, and public policy. Do you still carry a stethoscope sometimes? I do. I, I uh, still see patients uh, in a federally qualified health center, which is an underserved population in New York City. And um, my commitment to underserved populations will continue as well. Former VA Secretary Dr. David Shulkin will post this interview in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. (coughs) Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.